You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. In 1994, I was an intern for the summer at MTV in New York City. And not that song. That was his second hit, Coolio's. But Fantastic Voyage, which is a great song, was literally on like every probably twice an hour in that summer of 94 for Coolio. And news coming out last night, just about 12 hours ago, that apparently Coolio was visiting a friend, I believe, in California, uh, went to the restroom, was unresponsive for quite some time. They finally did a well, you know, wellness check on him, and he had collapsed in the bathroom, um, undetermined as to what the cause of death was for Coolio. I thought I saw cardiac arrest. I, I mean, I think that was assumed based on, um, you know, the way he was found or whatnot. Also, that song stood the test of time. Yeah, I mean, he had a couple of really good songs, and then kind of became one of those personalities on you know different variety shows, if you will. Um, you know, another one that um, yesterday that I learned of late last night. If you've ever been to the Rascaler, either one of you guys have been to the Rascaler? Oh, without question. Yep. Was there last month. If you go to the Rathskeller and just before you go out to the beer garden, uh, Wayne Bigby was kind of the head bartender there of the bar in the beer hall just before you go outside. And Wayne is one of those guys. It was unbelievable. I, I mean, literally, I went in one time and, you know, I, I've been to the Rathskeller plenty of times in my life, but never like a bar fly by any stretch. But I walked up and the dude said, like, you want an IPA? I'm like, holy cow, dude. Like, how did you know that? And like he he had a unique ability of every single person feeling like they were Norm from Cheers when they walked in to the Rathskeller. In terms of this city, and I did not know Wayne at all, only knew him from being a customer of his at the Rathskeller. But in terms of this city and people in the service industry that make every single person that they deal with feel like that's their home, which is what I want for Indianapolis for everywhere, this city could have benefited from 10,000 Wayne Bigby's working in bars, restaurants, any sort of service industry, hospitality industry at it, of any way, shape, or form. There was nobody better at what they did than Wayne. Uh, who also yesterday, it was announced, unexpectedly passed away. And that is a huge void, huge void for downtown Indianapolis, for people that enjoy the Rathskeller, which is one of the great crown jewels of Indianapolis. Love the Rathskeller. absolutely be missed. Absolutely love it. Absolutely will be missed. Um, So anyway, moving forward, Kevin, uh, condolences, by the way, though, to the friends and family of Wayne Bigby and to all who crossed paths with them at the Rathskeller. They you probably know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, Jim Mercer, this is a big one for him this weekend. Uh, gargantuan. That's probably the word I would use. Um, again, we'll have Zach Kiefer on in the 9 o'clock hour. Um, he did a great job of going back to last year's meeting. You know, when you think back to the meeting here at Lucas Oil Stadium last year, Jake, do you remember that game at all on Halloween? Colts got off to the big lead. Tyquan Lewis injures his knee and fumbles on an interception right. return. Carson Wentz throws an interception with his left hand. Colts lose in overtime. A.J. Brown goes off. Uh, just an excruciating loss. And really, 
pretty much ended your AFC South hopes on Halloween. Because you had lost, you know, down in Nashville in week three when Wentz was hobbled. Um, after that game, and Zach has the details of this in his story, after that game, Ursay brings all of his scouts in for a meeting at West 56th Street. And this quote Zach has in a story from Ursay in reference to what he said to those scouts. Do you like being dominated? Because you're getting your ass kicked. We have to get past Tennessee. Well, we don't. Not until somebody stands up and does something about it. I think it's pretty rare for the owner, particularly to do that with calling in all of the scouts. Obviously, a seven-year AFC South drought. Like we said to open up the show today, watching Tennessee, the team that's probably been the most rival-like to Indianapolis. Jake, you referenced the 1999 playoff game here. That probably plays something into it. And I think more present day, the fact that Mike Vrabel and Frank Reich were hired in the same cycle. You interviewed Vrabel before the McDaniels, you know, commitment, and then obviously the decommitment, if you will, and then Frank Reich being the new head coach after Tennessee chose Mike Vrabel. That probably adds to it. So this one, monumental. Monumental for the owner. And when you look at how the AFC South has unfolded to start this year, again, Jake, in the last seven years, the Colts have not won one AFC South crown. The winner has won either five of six or four of six AFC South games. So if you want to win the AFC South, in all likelihood, you've got to have four or five division wins. The Colts, that means the Colts would have to run the table to get to four AFC South wins. Doesn't it feel like Tennessee is undoubtedly backpedaling? Maybe not sprinting backwards. Backpedaling is probably the wrong word. But it feels like in the AFC South, you know, the... the I, I think d- backpedaling is the right way I, I to drove, say it. I drove to Chicago yesterday. And at one point, Michael, the guy from Australia, said, what are your rules on the left lane here? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, this this guy over here in the left lane, at one point on 65, there were three lanes. And he said, this guy in the left lane is going way too slow, like we're about to pass him on the right. So I was in the middle lane, but then somebody in the far right is like coming, like accelerating quickly. So I have to decide, like, okay, do I go ahead and get in front of the guy in the left lane now, or is he eventually going to realize he's not supposed to be in the left lane, and he's going to merge over, and then I'll just, you know, how, how do we do this here? And, and the Colts feel like they are the team that that was they were me they're in the middle lane and they're used to being in the left lane so they've got somebody saying like why is somebody in the left lane that's too slow to be there well that's Tennessee Tennessee's been in the left lane but like are they really a left lane team right now no and Jacksonville's the one the guy in the right lane that all of a sudden like in the Hyundai is coming at like 90 and you're like well, where is this coming from I, mean, I didn't expect was the this num- at all they were the number one seed last year I know Jake. I know but since then it just feels like they've just dropped off and they're just kind of coming back into traffic. Does that make sense? I remember having this discussion the Friday night after the draft. So Thursday night is round one. The Colts did not have a pick in round one this year. Before the Colts took Alec Pierce, before they took Jelani Woods, before they traded back in the third round to take Nick Cross, the best moment of the draft for the Colts and I would argue the best moment of the Colts offseason was Tennessee saying, see ya, to A.J. Brown. That was a huge head, head scratcher for me at the time, and it looks even worse the way they've started the season, too. I think for two reasons, Mark. I, I 
couldn't agree more on that. One is you have a quarterback that I think needs weapons to manage whatever you hope he is trying to manage. Ryan Tannehill is not going to get Nick Westbrook. I think he's added a last name since he's been at IU. He's not going to get him to become a thousand yard wideout. You know, this is not a guy that all of a sudden is going to lift the Blair Whites of the world like Peyton Manning might have. And then two, if you look at how the wide receiver market unfolded this offseason, the four main guys that all fell in that draft class, I think it's the 2019 draft class, the four guys that play wide out that all wanted extensions, Terry McLaurin, DK Metcalf, Debo Samuel, A.J. Brown, those four, only one was traded from his team. Mm-hmm. The other three re-signed. And the other three re-signed with, I think, different types of teams in that Seattle's kind of in a rebuild. Washington's in this awkward situation with Wentz. Obviously, San Francisco, I think, views it a little bit more in a win now. But Tennessee, who you would think would fall into the win now category, given Derrick Henry's age, and just Derrick Henry, age probably is the right term, maybe just given the the father time effect of any running back in the NFL, and the fact that he just had an injury that sidelined him for multiple months, it made zero sense to me why Tennessee decided to send A.J. Brown pack in. And I think when you've watched them this season, they just look... They just lack firepower. Yeah, I, that's fair. Well, how They're, many years did they go the go to the gates with Kendall Wright, Corey Davis? Like guys, you're just exactly. like, man, if they could get a wide receiver, and then they got AJ Brown, they traded him away. Was, right. Okay. Who was the receiver they had drafted? Kenny Nix was that his name? Kenny well, Britt. Kenny Britt. That was supposed to be, you know, yeah, Corey Davis was the fifth overall I mean, pick, right? They yeah. mm-hmm. they were always searching for like a big target receiver for so long. They're a DK Metcalf type that they yeah. kept th- thinking was going to hit. Never happened. Seattle's an interesting one you mentioned, Kevin, because, you know, Seattle, I wonder now how much of it is Seattle decided to rebuild versus Seattle felt like Russell Wilson was no longer, futuristically speaking, going to give them return on investment. So, but, uh, Because okay, Geno Smith point, has not been terrible. To that point, then wouldn't they trade away DK Metcalf? Fair. Fair. It, it, that's what's odd to me. It's but, like the teams that you would slot more in a rebuild than Tennessee decided to say. But would you agree, though, that like, because you thought to yourself, like, wait a minute, Geno Smith, that guy was the backup for for the Jets like nine years ago. And yet he has not been a disaster, right? Like you, you thought when Geno Smith took over in Seattle, it felt like, OK, well, the Seahawks are going in a direction where they just got to have somebody taking snaps. But well, he's been OK. What is there? Is it one and two? They're one and two, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't pretend I've watched. Seahawks-Falcons is not on my watching viewing. We've referenced Zach Kiefer's story a few times on today's show. His latest on The Athletic involving some uh, pretty candid Jim Irsay comments in regards to the opponent coming up on Sunday. That would be the Tennessee Titans, who have won four of five against the Colts in the last two AFC South championships. Zach joins us now. Um, Zach, Jim Mercer wasn't messing around when he called his scouts in for a uh, meeting last year after that Halloween loss to Tennessee, was he? Are there any other Jim Irsay comments that are that are not candid? <laughs> I heard your description there. Um, this was yeah, particular candid and maybe a little PG-13. Yeah, a little specific, too, about one particular team. Um, these were before that Halloween game. Before, when it okay. Worse. This was after the 0-3 game, and he called them all in, and he ripped into them. 
And in, and he was very, very, very candid with us when we talked about this back in the spring about how much it just angers him that his team cannot get over the hump against Tennessee. So I don't think there's very meeting, very many meetings this team has where every coach in the building comes in for a meeting and then the scouts that are in town sit down with the owner during the season. It just doesn't happen. But that's kind of a peek into just how furious this guy is that they cannot beat this Tennessee Titans team. Zach, Jim Mersey, I think most would agree, is a good owner. He's obviously an eccentric personality. He's a kind guy. And I know that he is passionate about football because he's been around it his whole life. That's the good thing. The bad thing sometimes might be that he's been around football and he's passionate about it because he's been around it his whole life. Do you believe that there's ever a time where he starts to toe that line of becoming an overly involved owner? I certainly think it's possible. I think that's a question better answered by Chris Ballard or Frank Reich, but I certainly and, and obviously, Jake, I'm coming from the side of, you know, I'm writing about this, and this is interesting. And it's interesting when the owner gets out and says what he does about this team that they haven't beaten in the last couple of years. But does this, does this help the team right now? I don't, I don't necessarily think it does. Um, but I think it's, it's a double-edged sword, and, and you've been around this team for a long time as well. It's, it, it's where does the passion stop and, and where does it become too much? And that's a hard question for me to answer. Because um, I think you'd rather have that than not. I think you'd rather have an owner who's, one, knows what's going on and understands what's going on and isn't just in this for the paycheck. A lot of owners are, you know, into other businesses. This is Ursa's life in a lot of ways. Um, but, yeah, I think it's a fair question to ask. And, look, I mean, you're, you're, I'm peeking ahead a little bit, but when the commanders come into town in a couple of weeks, I think a lot of the focus is going to shift to what Jim Ursa has said publicly about Carson Wentz. And I don't think – Maybe that's a good storyline for the Colts heading into that game. Zach, one more on the these Ursay comments front. And again, you can check out Zach's latest on The Athletic um, with these comments in here about Tennessee and, again, winners of 4 or 5 in this series. How much of it, if any at all, do you think comes from him sitting here looking at his franchise in the Frank Reich tenure, which also matches up with the Mike Vrabel tenure, who the Colts mm. did interview in that same hiring cycle, and it's Vrabel's Titans that have won two division titles, made longer playoff runs, have won four or five against the Colts. I think you nailed it. I think, one, I think Jim Say really admires Mike Vrabel. He's said this publicly several times, several times, and privately as well. I think he really admires the work Mike Vrabel does. And I think he sees, at least in the past, let's, let's not get to this year because we don't know what's going to happen, but I think he sees the Titans as a better version of the Colts. Right? I think Vrabel gets as much out of his roster as any coach in the league, and they have exceeded expectations a lot with that roster. I mean, they have not had an elite quarterback. They've made a run to the AFC title game. They've won the division tight. And really, until Jacksonville does it, you know, they've started well, but until the Colts do it, this division runs through Tennessee. And I don't care that they're 1-2 and two right now. I still think even though they've lost some pieces, you know, these teams are going to have to beat the Titans. And, you know, no Landry and no Luan and, and obviously no A.G. Brown. That's going to change things moving forward. But I think, you know, one, I think Chris Ballard was going to hire an offensive coach in 2018. He did hire, you know, he did interview Mike Vrabel. But um, I think Ursay looks at the Titans and sees a better version of his team in the, in the past couple of years. I think that really bothers him. Now, 
Derrick Henry hit his peak a little bit before Jonathan Taylor, and Taylor is obviously very much in it. Whether Henry is still in it, we'll see throughout this season. But um, look, the Colts want to be a, a dogfight, punch-you-in-the-mouth, trenches team, right? At their best, that's what they're going to be right now with this roster as it's currently constructed. And the Titans have simply just beat them at their own game the last couple of years, and I think that really bothers Jim Irsay. Speaking of the construction of the roster, Zach, it's the beginning of the year, and we've talked a lot about it. Chris Ballard said that he wants depth. You know, depth is the thing that he most kind of obsesses over. Uh, now that we are, you know, the season is underway, and there have been some nicks and bruises here and there, the area on this roster that you feel they actually do have the most depth and the area that you might have anticipated depth that now starts to look like maybe it could be exposed? I really like the linebacker group, and I don't want to get everyone all excited, but I did see yesterday when the first-team defense was out there, I saw 53 with that group, and I hadn't seen that the last couple weeks. I'm not making a prediction, but I did see Shaq Leonard out there with that team, And, and I thought Zaire Franklin played a terrific game on Sunday. So EJ speed's been up, he's been down, but he did make the big play in Houston. You know, I do think the linebacker depth is pretty good and Ballard's been pretty good at that throughout his career. O'Kara K played a lot better on Sunday as well. I, I don't know, Jake, like I, you know, I was down on the tight ends big time in, in September and August. And, and I don't know if that changes a lot based on Sunday. You've got to give Jelani Woods a ton of credit for making those two catches. I mean, what a start for him. He, he stepped up and he won the game when this team needed it, and that's what you want. I don't think he's going to see a huge uptick in snaps. I just don't see that, and I still think the, the loss of Ogletree is bigger than most realize because he was going to get a lot of snaps too. So, you know, Colin Grant's biggest contributions have been on special teams so far, and Moelle Cox has not done very much in the passing game. I know he's a big blocker, but I just don't like that tight end group. So I don't think that answers your question because I'm not really moving in one direction with that group. How do you guys feel about the wide receivers? I thought it was a really good day for Alex Pierce. He did exactly what we watched him do at Cincinnati on tape, those jump balls down the sideline. He gives them a vertical threat. He spreads the field. Um, Ashton Doolin is, is a scrappy receiver who makes plays. Paris Campbell had the third down catch. He needs to do more. Um, but I, Desmond Patman and Michael Strawn, the depth, is, they just haven't done enough consistently. So, I'm going to be really, really creative and, and go with the wide receivers because I just don't know if they're going to do it week in and week out. But Hope Pierce, that was a good day for him. Yeah, huge, really big. Honestly, I'd probably decrease Campbell's playing time right now and increase Pierce and Doolin and maybe Strawn um, until Campbell starts to show you a little bit more. And I would agree, Zach, I do think there is at least a chance that Shaquille Leonard gives it a go on Sunday. I would not have said that this time last Thursday. Zach Kiefer from The Athletic is with us here on the Payless Slickers Hotline. Uh, Zach, we've talked, of course, a lot this week about the pass protection issues. If you had to lay the root of it, would you say it's more personnel-based or more communication-based? Well, you ask the question a hundred times, you get a hundred different answers from a hundred different guys. You know, the, the, the vibe I got in the locker room on Sunday, now, that being said, these guys were pumped. They just won a game. And I'm here asking them what the hell's wrong with the line. But, I mean, they keep saying communication. They keep saying communication, and I just don't get it with a veteran center and a veteran quarterback. But the vibe and the word I've gotten the last couple of days, and we've heard this in press conferences as well, is it's not just the offensive line. And I actually buy that. It's really hard for us watching the tape to single out whose assignment is what. Like, right? Like, it's, you don't know the plays exactly. 
Um, I think Taylor missed one, and I think the tight ends haven't done quite as good of a job, and I think the receivers have missed a couple blocks, and those matter. Because I don't know if you guys have felt this watching the games, but you see JT take a run six, seven, eight yards, and last year you feel like he would have gotten that to the house. You just feel like he's really close to busting one. But to do that at the second level, you need that last block, or you need that last block to hold just one more second. And it feels like the receivers aren't making that last block or whatever it is. And I said this in the spring and I said this in the summer, they're going to miss Zach Pascal in the run game, and they're going to miss Jack Doyle in the run game. And those aren't splashy players. But those are the kind of guys that spring those big runs for Taylor. And, and I think Taylor's close. Um, but I think the running backs and the receivers bear a little blame in this as well. NFL's week-to-week, Zach, and the Kansas City game, I think there were a lot of people that felt like the roof would have caved in had they lost that game just based on record. But Tennessee, to me, this is the one, actually, it was great to get that win against Kansas City. But now, all of a sudden, it feels like that pressure on the roof goes right back again because it's a divisional game, and it just feels like with – and I keep harping on – I'm not saying Jacksonville's going to hang around forever, but clearly – the, the division itself, you only have one real throwaway, it seems, at this point. In hell, you couldn't even beat them. But um, <laughs> would you agree that because it's a divisional game, this one, if they don't get it, would be difficult to bounce back from long term? Yeah, this is the can't-lose game. It was never last week. It was never the Chiefs game. It's always been this one. And it's not just Ursa and how he feels. This is the game that tells us that the Colts are different in 2022 than they were in 2021. And I think it, it will be because of the different talent the Titans have, right? I mean, they, they're missing some really good players. But I'm never going to underestimate Mike Vrabel. He gets the most out of his roster as any coach out there. And they just make games messy. They just make it tough up front. And talking to the players yesterday, I mean, they called it a dog fight. They called it a heavyweight fight. They called it, you know, one player said it might be a 10-7 to 7 game. So this is the game that, that's more important than the standings because if you get behind this – you know, you got one tie and two losses in the division, and you're supposed to win the division. And this team has spent so much energy climbing out of these holes the last couple of years. Um, this is the game. You cannot lose this game at home. You're going to see the Titans again in a couple of weeks down in Nashville. Um, you lose this game, and winning the division championship all but disappears. Again, Zach Keeper, some great stuff up on the Athletics this week. Not only those Jim Irsay comments, but kind of a cool look at these two teams and their philosophy, a run game focus from both the Colts and Titans. What does that mean for NFL success in the playoffs? A lot of kind of analytical stuff in there from Zach Kiefer on that front. Zach, as always, thank you for the time, man. Thanks, guys. Hey, Jake Adam Schefter just tweeted out what we were talking about earlier in the show. The first mispractice of Jonathan Taylor's meaningful football career. That would be high school, college, or professionally. Uh, a toe injury for Jonathan Taylor. Some soreness developed after the game on Sunday. Again, fully expect him to play, but I just think it's a reminder, Jake, of, and our next guest certainly knows this with Derrick Henry, of what wear and tear can do at that position. And a toe injury. What was Henry's foot, right, last year? Yeah, you know, Derrick Henry seems to... That's the body part you want to avoid. Right. If you can. And so, Taylor has been extremely rare and extremely durable in the definition of a workhorse. But it's just, I think, something to monitor as the carries continue to build up for him over his career. So, let's bring in our next guest who covers the Tennessee Titans. 
Teron Davenport joins us on the Payless Liquors guest line. And Teron, I'll begin with this. And, and when I say it, I give you full permission to later tonight at dinner say you are not going to believe what some idiot in Indianapolis on the radio asked me. Um, but outsider observation, I look, I, I just think Derrick Henry is just an unbelievable talent and just such a unique talent. But are we already starting to see, because of the wear and tear through college, high school, everything else, are we starting to see any slowdown on Derrick Henry? No, you're not really seeing a slowdown on Derrick Henry. He traditionally starts a little bit slower and gets going as the season goes on. But the big thing with Henry this year has been how many times he's been hit at or behind the line of scrimmage. And that's something that continues to happen and when you look at the first couple games, uh, entering last week, he was hit almost half of the times he ran the ball. You know, you were talking about 16 out of 34 carries. He had some contact at or behind the line of scrimmage. So that's really what you're seeing. This is an offense that's still trying to get back and in, in sync as far as the rushing attack is concerned. And it's it's a gradual process. Teron, kind of building off that, again, Teron Davenport from ESPN.com is with us. I think I saw a stat like he's averaging maybe 0.3 yards before contact. It's the lowest of any running back with at least 50 carries this year. Like again, to your point, it feels like just opposing defensive lines have really owned the line of scrimmage and have not Mm -hmm. allowed Henry much room to work. And you look at the Colts and they're the number one ranked run defense in the NFL. It seems like for him in particular, he's a guy that, you know, and any running back is like this, but you know, you give Henry a couple free yards, and then all of a sudden you let those that pad level and 250 pounds get to you, and it can be the end of it. Whereas if you can hit him early and kind of gang tackle, uh, that seems to be the recipe that has you know limited Henry from his typical production this season. That is the exact recipe. It's find a, a you know a crease, get to him, and rally to the football before he could get momentum because they like to get him downhill. They run those stretch plays. They run, uh, you know, outside zone, and he could put his foot in the ground and cut it back, and he gets to the second level. He typically will break a linebacker's tackle, and once he does that, it's a foot race, and he usually wins those. So you're exactly right with how to, to defend him, and, and that's really that's what's happening. Teron, this is going to sound um, also, again, maybe a little bit harsh or naive. I don't know. I, I, I just got this feeling, and I want you to tell me if, if it's off base. Not that Tennessee is coming back down to the level of going to miss the playoffs. I'm not saying that. But in the AFC South, there was so much worry in Indianapolis about the Titans, and that's always been the benchmark, that it feels to me like maybe Tennessee is starting to regress a little bit and Jacksonville is really starting to to find its footing and that those two might be two ships passing in the night. Do you agree with that? Well, I don't know about two ships passing in the night, but I think that the gap has definitely been closed. And all that Jaguars team needed, because they have an awful lot of talent, all they needed was a little bit of hope. And that win that they got, you know, the 24 to nothing win over the Colts, that, that gave them a lot of it, you know. And uh, when you have a bunch of young players, uh, and, and especially with a new experienced coach like Doug Peterson coming in, I watched him with the Eagles in 16 and 17 just really turn things around and, and, and get those guys to believe in themselves. And it's just when you have that, you know, young guys that get a critical win, they start really believing in things and buying in. And once you get that buy-in as a program, 
you're definitely going to be competitive. Now, when you look at the Titans, there's been a, a, an exodus of, of talent, right? A.J. Brown, you know, gone. And, and you guys know what he has done to the Colts when yeah, yeah. Henry was held to under 100 yards. And then you look at Harold Landry, injured. Bud Dupree will probably be back. But there's been a lot of talent. You, you know, John o. Smith, gone. So you're seeing the gap being closed because of that. Teron Davenport is with us. It's at T Davenport underscore NFL on Twitter. He covers the Titans for ESPN.com. Uh, kind of going off the A.J. Brown trade, the Harold Landry season-ending injury, the Taylor Lewan season-ending injury, do you rank it in that order of impact in terms of their losses, Brown, Landry, and then Taylor Lewan? Yeah, that, that's how I would rank it. And the problem, what you're seeing right now, is teams will put the whole city that they play for inside the box. They don't care about the guys on the outside. They don't feel threatened by them. And they used to try to do that before, and A.J. Brown would murder one-on-one matchups. Right now, they're not consistently winning those one-on-one matchups. Robert Woods, Traylon Burks, Nick Westbrook, and Kenan. These guys aren't winning those matchups, and they have to win that. And that's why I talked to Traylon Burks about this. And, and he said he takes it personally, but uh, it's fine to Danny to do that. But you got to show that you take it personally on the field. And I think that's really where the problem is. And that's why A.J. Brown is the number one missing piece for them. Now, when you look at Harold Landry, obviously he's a guy that not only brings it on the pass rush side of things, he's a very strong run defender as well. But when you take him out, that that you lose your your best pass rusher, you you lose your closer, and I'm talking about situationally too. He had 12 sacks last year. Seven of those 12 came on third down. That's when it's time to get off the field, and he was the guy helping them do that. So that's something that they really lose. Now, as far as Milan is concerned, you know that is a, that's a locker room presence that they lose. They like to run left, and uh, that whole left side of their offensive line now is is retooled, right? Because Roger Saffold is gone. He he's in, in Buffalo and, and, and Lawan is gone as well. So they are traditionally a left handed team. They have to kind of balance that out now because in fact the strength of their line is on the right with Nicholas Petit Ferrar, the rookie, and Nate Davis. Teron Davenport is our guest. He's on the Payless Lickers guest line. He is the Titans writer and NFL writer for ESPN dot com. Teron um the the backup quarterback is always the most popular guy in town. People in Indianapolis have known that for a long time. But in the case of Tennessee, did they get enough glimpse in preseason and just through camp to find out and determine whether or not Malik Willis is the future once Ryan Tannehill's time has come? Oh, they believe he's the future. They believe that when they drafted him. But it's just a work in progress. That's a, a developmental thing, and that's the approach that they've taken. But the thing that's really good about Malik Willis in the preseason, he's layered each game, and he just got better in exact moments each game. And, and you, you saw him you know, initially have a play-action glance route that he stared down and didn't throw it and got – you know, he got 18 yards, but – you know, it was you gotta get the ball to your playmaker. You know, he tucked it and ran. The next game, he uh, ended up, you know, throwing that, and it was a big, big play on the first game of the uh, first play of the game. And then you look at the second game, he had Traylon Burks on a crossing route. He didn't get him the football, but then in the third, 
in the third game, he got him the football in the same play. So you're seeing that type of progress. He's made it a point to really make things happen from from the pocket. Just when it's clean, to stay in there and not vacate it uh, prematurely. And that's that's big progress for a quarterback like Malik Willis coming out of Liberty. So there's there's been you know really good signs, and they believe he's the future for sure. And, you know, half the battle, Teron, you know, you've been around the game. I, half the battle with young quarterbacks is finding guys that are perfectly capable and willing to understand everything you just said and kind of let it happen organically as opposed to coming in and needing the reps right away. What has been his mental approach in terms of, um, you know, has he shown to be a, a mature guy in terms of the understanding of the learning that is necessary in the NFL through the acclimation? I really I think that's his biggest strength. And I, I remember talking Boy, that's a big one too, and, isn't it? What's that? That's a big one too. I mean, if there's one, you know what I mean? Like that's that's kudos to him because that's a strength that not many guys as young quarterbacks often have. Yeah. Well, see, the thing with him is you, you look at just background. You know, he is a guy who's very strong in his face. He, he he's a very mature young man. And that has allowed him to take the right approach to this mentally and just say, hey, look, I know I'm talented, but I need reps. And this is the only way that I'm going to get better. I need reps. I'm just going to be a sponge, absorb everything that QB coach Pat O'Hara, offensive coordinator Todd Downing, Ryan Tannehill, Logan Woodside, I'm just Mike Vrabel, all these things that these, these guys are telling me, I'm just going to absorb it, have a, a humble approach, and just – keep progressing and I think that's really the the way he's going about it and and that's just from talking to him you know multiple times uh, about it. he understands that you know reps are going to help him and whatever they're trying to teach him is just going to benefit him Tron how bad would it have to get for Malik Willis to be a starting quarterback this season I don't think – I think barring injury, Ryan Tannehill is going to play it out. Uh, they're going to allow him they, – they won't flip-flop it. In my opinion, it's very unlikely. So, um, even if it's 2-15, and, and 15, I, I don't think Willis will get too many starts. All right, last one for me. Then again, Teron Davenport is with us. You hear him often when the Colts and the Titans meet up. It'll be, what, two matchups in I think less than a month this season. Yeah, uh, between two the Colts. three weeks. Yeah, between the Colts and the Titans. Um where would you call Tennessee's greatest strength right now? Where would you point to for their greatest weakness? Wow. <laughs> it's hard to find a strength, to be honest with you, on this team. After Frank Reich said games. they're disguising up front, which probably falls in line with maybe the Colts' biggest question mark right now. It's just what the pass rush, you know, how can it disguise? I think obviously personnel, like you said, they've lost a lot in Landry, but that's where Frank Reich pointed to. Yeah, well, I guess you answered your own question, huh? <laughs> I don't <laughs> well, have to answer it. I want someone no, that's seen I, the I Titans think, a little more. I think really it's it's their their first half starts. That's that's their strength. They they've managed to to come out and score on their first drive in in, in three consecutive games, which is something they they don't normally do. So you know that, in my opinion, is, is their strength. Uh, just finding on, on those first drives, the balance that, that they need to have as far as running versus passing and just working the, the ball down the field. Teron, are you a native of Nashville? I live in Nashville now, yes. But you didn't grow up? Did you grow up there? No, absolutely not. Okay. Do you enjoy Nashville? Because it's a 
Nashville to me is a fascinating place because when I was a kid, you know, it was just Opryland, right? And then now it's like this, it's become like Vegas of the East. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it has. It's it's a lot different now. And even in the five years I've been here, I've seen a, a lot of expansion, a, a lot. Of, I'm actually sitting at, at my daughter's high school talking to you guys. And, and when I first got here, this school wasn't here. <laughs> and this neighborhood that I'm looking at wasn't here. So it definitely been a lot of expansion. So you're a Philly native, is that right? Correct. Yeah, so see, within by the time your daughter's out of school, Nashville's going to be bigger than Philly. That's how it feels, at least, right? Yeah, it is how it feels. And, you know, Philly is, is an area, it's a city that's in a bit of trouble, you know, with, with violent crime and, and things like that. Um, there was a, a record for, for murders last year and on pace to shatter that this year. So uh, that's that's the big concern in, in, in Philly. The violent crime is just is getting out of hand. Yep. I mean, it seems to be the case, unfortunately, a lot of places. Teron, do you yeah. think Nashville's going to get a Major League Baseball team? I'm praying that they do. I, I'm praying that they do. Uh, I, I lived the, the first – I was born in New York and lived, lived there the first 10 years. I'm a huge Mets fan. So uh, I would love to not have to go to Atlanta to to see my Mets. So yeah, if they could get a team here, uh, I really I I would love it. It's it's something that they're working on. Dave Stewart, former yeah, Oakland A's pitcher, is the guy that's actually helping spearhead it. You know, big was... series coming up for your Mets, right? Uh, absolutely, let's go. <laughs> Teron, actually, last question on this because I do think this could have some meaning in Indianapolis. Um, which is Nashville, I guess, more conditioned for or more pushing towards a Major League Baseball team or an NBA team? Because I worry, with the Pacers, I worry about Seattle and Nashville hanging around there and the possibility there. Yeah, there hasn't really been much from that perspective. You got the Memphis Grizzlies, of course, that's two hours away, but... That's more or less the the NBA team that that you know is here, so to speak. Um, there's an actual push. There's a, a movement towards getting a baseball team here that's in existence. So I would say that's the direction that this city would go before basketball. It'll be this Sunday at Lucas Oil Stadium, and then as Teron mentioned, these two teams will meet again down in Nashville, October 23rd, as the Colts will play five of their six AFC South games in the first seven weeks of the year. Teron, always enjoy our conversations, and hopefully we can do it again in a few weeks. For sure. Appreciate you guys. Take it easy. Pacers training camp underway. That means our next guest over at Fieldhouse Files is a must. That is Scott Agnes. It's honestly been a pretty busy offseason for him. Uh, But second practice of training camp underway, the preseason will open up on Wednesday, and then the regular season opens up. I think it's like the 18th or 19th of October. Yeah, 19th, the Wizards. That will be the season opener for the Pacers here in a very different-looking season for Indiana. Scott Agnes is with us on the Payless Slickers Hotline. Scott, anything stand out to you from media day? I thought Rick Carlisle, I, you know, part of me thinks it's coach speak, but just the we'll play at least 10 guys, seeing if he holds true to that night in and night out, I think is something that stood out to me. Obviously, had Miles Turner talk about his trade situation. Anything else really stand out to you? Um, not really. I think more so just so many of the new guys just talking about their excitement just to learn and kind of play together. Um, 
which uh, just all these new parts being put together. But otherwise, I think the overwhelming theme was, hey, we don't even have expectations. We just want to see progress. Scott, this roster to me, Kevin and I have used the word intriguing and exciting. Um, I'm not necessarily saying they're going to result in a lot of wins for this year. I think we all know what's taking place here. But uh, not named Benedict Matherin and not named Miles Turner, the player that kind of most intrigues you to see what he can do this year is who? You'll love this one, Isaiah Jackson. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, the there's there's a lot of just general excitement, I think, after a guy's rookie season because that summer is always a big one for him. They kind of have an understanding of the game, understand the league, kind of the schedule, the routine, all of that. They figure out, oh, man, I really need to improve here, X, Y, and Z. I thought I was good, but I really wasn't. So I'm, I'll be curious to see all the off-season work and kind of how he um, turns that into a, a greater role with more to being dependent on him. Scott, I'm curious your thoughts on Bob Kravitz's story yesterday, Miles Turner related. Jake and I had a pretty long discussion about it, and I think Jake is a little bit more open-minded to thinking that Miles and the Pacers could have a future after the season. Bob seemed to slam the door shut on any sort of idea along those lines. Uh, where do you think things stand potentially 2023 and beyond, I guess 2023-2024 season and beyond with Miles Turner in Indiana? Yeah, I think it's much more likely that he is elsewhere only because they've already invested in, in younger guys, and you can kind of, you can see that's the path they're going. Probably headlined by the guy I was just talking about um, in Isaiah Jackson in the front court. Um, and Miles, on the other side of things, one, he's going to want to get paid, and two, if he can also be in a winning situation, he needs to get back to that, wants to get back to that. He's never gotten out of the first round of the playoffs. So, you know, the first few years he was after he was drafted here, he, he was able to be on some of those teams that had success still when the Pacers were almost always in the playoffs. Well, that's unfamiliar territory for him, and actually so many. Tyrese hasn't yet. Buddy Heald, been in the league like six years, hasn't reached the postseason. Um, so I think, I think a combination of all those factors. I don't rule out a return. I just generally see it as highly unlikely um, at this point. The guy that um, I had kind of forgotten about, quite frankly, Scott Agnes, and then I'm, I, I went to the media avail the other day, and I, I, oh, yeah, that's right, that I think could be like a found $10 bill in your pocket. Aaron Neesmith, the young player that they got from, I believe, Boston that was a lot – I mean, he was a former lottery pick, but it just kind of hadn't taken off for him. Do you think they actually have a defined role for him, or is he a kind of a gravy, let's see what we got here kind of guy? I think they will. Yeah, he's been running with the second unit right now, and, and he's the one. You, you go back to one of your first questions, the guys that you're most intrigued to see, perhaps he's among that group, probably less so only because of the unfamiliarity uh, that most people have with him. Um, that all going down with the trade, that was basically just to move on from Malcolm Brogdon. But if he could crack, if he could really hit something here, and it doesn't have to be an all-star level at all, but even if he could become ideally a starter but maybe a rotation player in the long term, then you really had something. Um, so it, it, that was one of the intriguing pieces being brought back. Anytime you can get a lottery pick. I mean, we saw last trade deadline with, with Jalen Smith, for example. I'm not sure any of us expected him to go off the way he did and then become a, a phenomenon and trying to keep him. 
Um, I, I still, from what I've seen, still a little bit raw, still a little bit kind of unsure, still trying to figure out his way and navigate his way through the NBA. But that's not all too surprising. Hasn't got a ton of reps, has never had a consistent role. Now he can be in a system where he's more of a featured uh, player. And I'm not sure what to expect, but I, I think I think he'll produce much more than he had in the past. Yeah, if he can just sniff what Jalen Smith showed you and, and right. you know, I guess kind of projecting forward, you know, Duarte, Benedict Mather, and Tyrese Halliburton, if that's your one, two, three, you know, in, in the backcourt, if Neesmith can kind of be the first guard off the bench, I, I think that looks good. Guard wing, I, I think that would be ideal. I know Summer League was not good for him at all. Granted, he was thrown into a very chaotic situation with when that trade went down. But, yeah, he is one that I'm on on the list of curious to watch. Um, Scott, do you think Benedict Matherin starts, or do you think they bring him off the bench and start Buddy Heald and Chris Tuarte? Yeah, I think right now the plan's kind of what I had expected, which is to bring him off the bench. Now things might change after some preseason games here, but I, I'd keep Buddy Heald with Tyrese. He's also the veteran. And then and Chris Duarte, you know, going into year two as well. And, and if anything, you kind of make the rookie earn it a little bit. Um, I don't think you just give it to him right away. Now, certainly you need a high volume of minutes for guys like Benedict, like Chris Duarte, Isaiah Jackson. That's what this year needs to be about is those guys getting their 25, 30 minutes per game to, to knock off and check off these game reps and, and try to speed their way through it as much as they can. But I, I tend to believe Matherin will come off the bench, but I would not be surprised if a month or two in uh, he's back in the starting lineup. Scott Agnes of Fieldhouse Files is our guest. Scott, in terms of the uh, – and I realize that you're you you know you're not in there picking up a ball and, and running with the team itself. But in terms of tone, you know, the first day of practice I think was a lighter one. People were surprised by that. Players were relieved and surprised by that. What's the intensity been so far, or has it, has it ramped up at all in any way, shape, or form? Based on what coach and players have said, it seems to be the case. Yesterday, after the second practice, Rick said they've been running and, and playing to exhaustion. And so if you go off of that, I, I think that's quite interesting as guys try to get back in shape and such. I think usually day one is just kind of kind of that first day back at school where you can take it easy or figuring out where your desk is. Um, one coach is instructing on this, the co- next coach on that. Now, we're not in there for any of that but it sounds like the activity level has picked up and and the so is the competition especially defensively they've been doing these defensive drills especially towards the end of practice and uh the fact that the guys are making sure we know who won shows that it is that competitive it was the second unit on day one and yesterday was the starting group scott last one from me um there's probably some people that will attend a Pacers game this season that haven't been in the building since pre-COVID. Yeah. You know, a ton of renovations. I know you've been all over that story. Uh, for those that walk into Gamebridge Fieldhouse for the first time in a few years, what do you think will be kind of the biggest things that they notice about not only the in-game experience, but just the building in general? Yeah, I'd say when they walk in, the fact that you better not – cash does you nothing. you got to remember it's all uh, cashless. Um, credit cards, mobile ticketing, by the way. Then you get inside the bowl, and you'd see a giant new video board, those couple bars that go underneath each the east and west side, which changes kind of how things look within the lower level. 
Um, and then outside of that, something I have not seen yet is when you look up towards the West stands, they kind of have what I refer to uh, from Colts games, which should, I think, be more like the Bud Light zone, where you're kind of hanging out, socializing, and grabbing a drink during the game. So those might be among the, the main new features. Oh, and by the way, yeah, there's a Chick-fil-A inside. I know that's a big hit, too. Oh, and probably not a lot of Sunday games in the NBA, so that'll be a frequent stop. There's well, a new one that just oh, opened yeah, up on Washington. Can they can they sell Chick-fil-A at concessions on a Sunday in a venue? They cannot. I, I believe no. in the Falcons arena there's a Chick-fil-A, and they're kind of like, wait, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it makes no sense. But yet they still clean up, right? And then yeah, obviously, no obviously they got concerts and soccer games and whatnot, but yeah. Okay. Now, the, Scott, listen, the, the arena, I, you know, I got to go through there the other day, and – you know, it is amazing. There is no doubt. And people that go down are going to be blown away by the options. There is a part of me. And I think the Pacers know this. It's the world that we live in, especially in trying to compete with, you know, the L.A.s and the Miamis of the world. But, Scott, I'll ask you. There is a part of me that almost felt sad because I felt like um, the game experience is now completely gone from the the typical fan. Am I being too harsh? Not entirely. Uh, I think one, I want to see it kind of when we're back in full gear again. Um, it's now I think we're kind of pushed through a lot of all that COVID stuff. So, you know, you're really not seeing mass. You hopefully have people a little bit more comfortable going to games and such. But to your larger point, I think it's a little bit more stale. I do, especially the lower level where it's got um, those two entryways to the bar. One of the big aesthetics parts for me that I miss are the green seats and how it looks in the bowl. Now I think if you pop on a, a college basketball game that just so happened to be here, or I guess any other Pacer game, you don't look at the uniforms. Is it Atlanta? Wait, is it Brooklyn? Is it Memphis? I think you lost a little of that. However, the upgrade should help um, just create a, a better entertainment experience. I'll be curious what kind of a fan engagement both the Pacers and this venue, though, provide this year. Scott, last one. Um, I wouldn't be... We've had you on for now, you know, consistently 19 straight weeks or whatever, and you got to sneak in a Valley sports question. Um, I believe that that package begins like today or tomorrow. I thought it was late September is when the Valley Sports Plus, um, you can purchase that. You can't watch the first two preseason games. Is that correct, though? Yeah, I think they're doing just the, the second two, which are both at home. Um, is there year. any way we can watch those first two preseason games? Like, do they stream though? Like, so this is always one of the biggest questions I think, and I don't have it. I think if you have direct TV, usually there's some kind of alternative channel. Sometimes league pass picks it up. Sometimes it doesn't. And honestly, usually I just find some wild stream that is going there. There's generally no official way um, to find the other two games that are not televised. God, I feel like when I do that, I'm always afraid my laptop's going to blow up. I know, right? And one thing I've been pushing for, I would love, because other teams are doing this too, I'd love Pacers.com to pick them up. Right. Like all, Every game is technically streamed to an extent, right? At, at worst, they have the one overhead camera um, that's moving along. You technically wouldn't even need announcers. Um, and a lot of places even, they'll, they'll pick up the, the in-house in-game feed at the arena. And so at least you'll have the PA announcer and a feed. 
I'd love to see that at minimum to make sure every fan can watch all every game this season if they wanted to. Like I can watch, you know, Purdue scrimmage athletes in action, but I can't watch the Pacers and the Knicks in the preseason opener. You can watch the Dolphins practice on Twitter from some guy right. who snuck yeah. in, right? Yeah, Clifford <laughs> Stadium, exactly. The, the, it just seems a bit odd to me, and I know it's more of a league-wide thing, but like you said, stream it on a website. I is. Assume the Knicks will uh, – is it the Knicks for the opener? I keep on saying that. I don't even know what the, who the preseason opener is. You know, w- uh, Charlotte and then the Knicks. Okay, so Charlotte, you know, I assume that their bally or whatever will air it. I, I, I don't know. I'd, hell, give me a two-buck I mean, package. The Knicks are owned by the cable network that airs them, so they probably have some pretty decent coverage rights, right? Correct. You would think. <laughs> You'd think. Yeah, MSG Network. And, and to your point, Kevin, the Bally Sports Plus – Went live earlier this week on the 26th, but I think it'd be foolish for any fan to do it right now. You get a seven-day free trial, there's no game. So I think we probably won't have any indication or, I don't know, responses um, or feedback maybe here for another two or three weeks here as people really dive into it. I will say League Pass is really interesting this year because Microsoft took over the back end of it. So I'm really curious to see how much they cleaned up, perhaps streamlined it. after taking over that from Turner Broadcasting. Scott, before we let you go, uh, feel free to plug Fieldhouse Files for those that aren't following you over there, aren't subscribing. It's an absolute must. So uh, feel free to uh, let us know how to get access there. Yeah, I appreciate it. Just fieldhousefiles.com. If you subscribe, the stories go right to your inbox and hit on a, a few things, media day, um, what the emphasis on defense. And, and then today, the fact that having such a young camp it's led to a lot more instruction and and videos and and breakdown different stuff versus kind of picking up the ball and and getting after another season. So very interesting things over there at St. Vincent Center. Scott Agnes, Fieldhouse Files. He's with us every Thursday here on Kevin and Corey. Thank you, Scott. Hey, thanks, guys. Jake, I think when the um, schedule came out for Purdue this season, you you looked at this – guess restart of your Big Ten schedule you had Minnesota out of the gate and then you played your non-conference schedule and now you've got this at Minnesota game this was one that I think probably would fall a little bit more like in the Pickham area like when the season started I know Minnesota's I think had Jeff Brom's number but now all of a sudden losing to Penn State you see what Minnesota's done this now is the Aiden O'Connell injury this is almost a two touchdown underdog for Purdue, and if again you want any hope at the Big Ten West, this would seem to be one that you really need to try and pull off an upset on Saturday. Again, it is a noon kickoff from up there. Uh, let's begin here. Tom Deanhart from Golden Black joins us on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Tom, I tend to think the Colts can be vague on injuries. I feel like Jeff Brom takes it to a whole nother level. Uh, any update on Aiden O'Connell? The update is there is no update. So there you go. You know, we're going to get one last shot to talk to Coach Brom today, post-practice, probably about 5 p.m., and my guess is he's going to, he's going to tell us Aiden's a game-time decision. And we'll, we'll get the same for, uh, for the other litany of guys who missed last week. Of course, don't forget Jalen Graham, the best defensive player, has missed the last three games with that tibia fracture. I seriously doubt we see him in Minnesota. They certainly could use him against that physical gopher attack. But all eyes are on a- AOC. That's the question mark. But, again, I wish I could tell you more at this point, guys, as to if he's going to suit up or not Saturday. 
So the details we know is he got hurt early in that Syracuse game, and we the assumption is something rib-related? You nailed it right there. You know, we've asked Coach Brom uh, when the injury did occur. He said the first quarter of the Syracuse game. If you go back and watch it, it's hard to decipher maybe where exactly it happened. A lot of people thought maybe he was on the pick six in the fourth quarter. Um, but, no, Coach Brom said it was the first quarter. Yeah, it seems to be that the scuttlebutt anyway it seems to be speculation seems to be rib-related. Uh, cracked, bruised, who knows? Cartilage, uh, again, no details have been provided. I, I have asked Coach Brom on the record. Of course, he's not going to say what the injury is. So, yeah, you know what? I, I, if it is a rib thing, I, my, 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 you know, you guys know what the football is. This, it's not going to get better until after the season, right? So it's going to be whether you can tolerate pain or not and, uh, and still function at a high level. So, uh, again, uh, there, there's pain and there's injury, and uh, we're going to have to wait to see what's going to happen to number 16. You know, to me, this seems like a big one, Tom, other than the obvious. Minnesota's really – and I think Minnesota's really good, right? It's on the road. It's in the Big Ten. It's a team that typically – the games between Minnesota and Purdue just go bonkers, right? It's usually like a pinball game, just watching, scoring back and forth. But, And I know this sounds crazy and maybe hyperbole, but is this a big game for Jeff Brom, or have we just been saying that year in and year out? Or is this, in fact, the one where he needs to put his flag in the ground and say, yes, in fact, I'm the guy at Purdue, and this is what we're going to be? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think this is a flag-in-the-ground kind of a game. This is a game if you ever are going to scale the summit of the Big Ten West. Uh, this, this is the game you got to win. Uh, you, you mentioned briefly, the, I guess, the, uh, the dominance Minnesota's had over, over Purdue in the last 15, 20 years. Honestly, it's crazy. Um, Jeff Brom's 4-1 against P.J. Fleck. They've, he's lost the last four. You know, Purdue's never won in that new stadium up in Minnesota, their own six. Uh, you can go on and on with, with the bloody details, but Minnesota's had Purdue's number. That's the bottom line. And, again, it looks like the Big Ten West is going to go through the Twin Cities this year. And here you are. You get your chance. You're walking right up into their house, maybe send a statement. I know there's a lot of questions hanging over Purdue. It's going to be homecoming up there. It's going to be loud and crazy. And, yeah, this is going to be a, a good litmus test for this season. And where this program is overall. And uh, just a big month of October, too, guys. Don't forget that. I wrote something this week about October. Three of the four games are on the road. At Minnesota, at Maryland, and you come home for Nebraska, and then you go to Wisconsin. This is going to be the month that really tells us what type of season Purdue's going to have, obviously. Tom, what do you think of Austin Burton last Saturday night? <laughs> I think he's a number two quarterback, honestly. Um, he does a lot of nice things. I give the staff a lot of credit. They they. They, they played to your wheelhouse, which, which, which is what you got to do with your personnel. Don't ask them to do things they can't do. They rolled them out, got them on the move. You saw some option. You saw some QB run. Um, but, and the big but here, guys, is he, you, there's just no downfield passing game. Charlie Jones had, I think, 59 yards catch uh, receiving. The longest catch was 28 yards by a running back, Devin Mockabee, which is mostly a run after the catch. And to really make this Jeff Brom offense go, you need a quarterback that can take the top off a of defense and throw it deep. Austin Burton, he's, he's got a nice arm. He's a nice quarterback. He can get you through a game or two. But I think against a, a, a top-level opponent on the road, boy, it's going to be a tall task to ask this offense to function at the level it's going to need to function when it comes to passing the football for Purdue to maybe get a win up there. 
Tom, I've got a question for you. Tom Deanhardt is our guest on the Payless Leaguers guest line. Uh, that is not necessarily specific to Purdue, except for that it's the Boilers' um, mid-October tussle and maybe a game where they've got to kind of right the ship at that time. But what is it, do you think? I have my own theory here, but I'm interested in yours. How and why has it gone so south for Nebraska? And listen, Tom, for guys younger than we, guys in their mid-20s are probably like, what's he talking about? Nebraska, they've always been bad. No, this is a program that when – there's a reason the Big Ten went out and got them. And quite frankly, they have not upheld their end of the bargain here the last few years. What the hell is going on with Nebraska? And Nebraska's becoming a dated reference when you refer to good football, right? Uh, it's like it's like Indiana basketball, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good analogy. That's a perfect analogy, actually. Uh, a brand that's lost a lot of its hue, a lot of its shine, a lot of its, its glitter, and then it's an overall power and success, which is really what matters, right? I mean, they still have a tremendous following, both those brands do. A lot of eyeballs, packed the stands and whatnot, but the on-field product has been waning big time, especially for Nebraska. I mean, my gosh, it's the last conference title was 1999 when they were back in the Big 12, and obviously kids born then are like 23 years old or 21, 22 23 years old. So, yeah, a long time ago, fellas. Um, I don't think they have an identity. Ask yourself this. You've heard the phrase of making an elevator pitch, right? So you got you walk on an elevator with somebody. You got you got right up to the 10th floor to try to pitch somebody on what is Nebraska football. And think to yourself, what would be your pitch? I, I can't even tell you what their identity is. And that, that's part of the problem right there. There's been a constant turnover at the presidential level, number one. Number two, a ton of ADs as well. And then a lot of coaches. It's just been a turnstile of styles, leadership, philosophies for 20 years now. And here we go again. They're spinning the roulette wheel plan that they, they land on a good coach this time. We all know there's no guarantees. I don't care who you are, guys, how much money you got, what search term you use, what connections you have. Nobody knows if a hire is going to work. And they're riding that merry-go-round once again here. Trub you know Albert, right, is the AD making that call? Yeah, 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 yeah. Trub Albert is making the AD. And, guys, they've got stacks of money. They sit on a mountain of money. They can write a check as big as anybody wants. But they've been throwing money at problems for years. Money doesn't solve every problem you got. I, I just think that Nebraska, Indiana basketball's kind of had this issue. I think Notre Dame football had it for a few years there where the combination of other programs around you elevated. So in basketball for Indiana, for example, you know, Xavier's good now and Cincinnati's good now and, you know, et cetera, right? Michigan State has become a national power in the last 25 years. But in addition to that, the thing, Tom, that made Nebraska so unique was for so long they were able to get the big, strong, in-the-trenches, lineman, corn-fed Nebraska players. It was a foregone conclusion. Those players were coming to Nebraska. Then you complement them with being able to go out and get, like, say, some Lawrence Phillips Junior College kids that wanted to play behind those big lines. Well, now, in today's day, the world is just a much smaller place. So a kid from Kearney, Nebraska, doesn't feel like he has to stay in Lincoln for mom and dad to see him play football. Hell, he can go play at central florida and they can watch him on their ipad every single day uh, while they're out on the on the combine you know what i mean so just all the advantages for a nebraska kind of just through technology and the change of the world 
have have gone away a little bit, right? And they've just – it's almost like at no fault of their own. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, you, that, that, that's farmer could watch him on, on, on his eye watch while he's driving his car. That's right. Man. <laughs> yeah, I, I think those are great points. The world's going to become a smaller place. living in you know, global villages, somebody once said. And, um, you know, a lot of the advantages in Nebraska sort of crafted for itself in the 70s and 80s and 90s are gone. Um, remember, guys, there were the scholarship limits were, were much bigger back in those days. And they, they finally got brought down to 85, I don't know, in the mid to late 90s. The academic requirements in Nebraska, while they're in the Big 8, Big 12, weren't, let's just say, rigorous. And they've, they've, they've been tightened out there, and I think that's had an impact on them as well. Uh, and, and, and they were one of the first schools, guys, who really embraced that weight room culture, too. Uh, built that first massive weight room and, and, and just really dedicated themselves to almost a year-round program there. And everybody does the same stuff now, and they, they have no real edge on anybody from a training standpoint as well, or even a facility standpoint, although the facilities are very nice. So, And then just, you know what, two guys, another big issue for Nebraska, and this is, this is, this is an issue for a lot of schools. Maybe it's not a great excuse for Nebraska. This is no recruiting base. Um, there's nobody to recruit within a 280-mile radius of Lincoln, Nebraska. you got to get on a plan to get everybody. And people think, well, they should have never left the Big 12 because they could always recruit Texas because they had Texas schools in the Big 12. Well, I, I think you can still go to Texas and get guys. But anyway, uh, you have to cast a very wide net at Nebraska. And uh, the challenges are there. you got to get guys on campus. And once you get them on campus, then you can sell them. But sometimes it's hard to get them there. The line is climbing. Twelve and a half. Last I saw, Purdue is an underdog for a noon kick, and the Aiden O'Connell injury watch continues. And expect another vague answer coming up this evening. Tom, always enjoy your insight. Uh, it's a big one on Saturday. Could be Austin Burton again, and uh, hopefully we'll have you on here uh, sometime in October. Stay tuned up. I'm leaving tomorrow, and yeah, call anytime, fellas. Love it. Thank you, Tom.